You're listening to Radio Looks Lucid. I'm your host, Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me for episode 62. The title of tonight's episode is Pope Francis Meets Nancy Pelosi. Well, thanks for joining me here this evening. I've been uh, spending a little bit of time uh, getting things set up here and ready to go. You know, doing some of these uh, these podcasts slash live streams. There's a lot of technical stuff I have to get right. It seems like the, the last few times I've done that, I always forget one thing. And I have to shut it down and then I have to, to bring everything back up. And uh, anyway, I actually think I got everything going here. I've got my podcast recorder going. Yep, that's looking good. And got the live stream looking good there. Finally got a little better camera. I'd had problems with this camera that I bought. It was kind of a, I thought it was going to be a good camera, but it's kind of a cheap camera. So uh, right now I'm using my old, uh, it's actually an old Microsoft camera. I've had this thing for, I want to say about 11 years, um, but it still works great. Um, and uh, takes uh, does does a nice job with the, uh, the pictures. And so I'll just go ahead and keep using it for now. Um, anyway, yeah, you know, uh, Today, you know, but I guess before we launch into our, our main topic today, I just wanted to say, you know, what an amazing day, uh, just weather-wise again here in uh, in Cincinnati. You know, it was so nice. You know, I, I woke up this morning, I, when I got up early, and uh, it was foggy again. Um, it was in the low 60s. It was foggy out, and it's been foggy most of the days this week uh, in the morning, and it's pretty intense fog, and it seems like it, it kind of hangs around. Um, until nine or ten o'clock in the morning before it finally all all burns off. I'm not sure why that is, but I guess maybe we've got a lot of moisture. I don't know, but uh, but anyway, it's uh, it's been foggy, but boy, it's just been so nice. I mean, it was just uh, not a cloud in the sky today. It was 81 degrees. I had a chance to go out and do some bike riding again. So so that was that was nice. And uh, you know what a beautiful day to ride. You know, it's it's amazing. You can go out this time of year and ride. Uh, and I rode a. Uh, Goodness, I think about 27 miles or so today. And, and I didn't literally did not break a sweat. Um, you know, and it's just because even though it, it got up in the low 80s, um, the humidity is so low. You know, it just, you, you know, and, you know, if I were to do that in the, the middle of summer, of course, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd just have just sweat just pouring off of me, but it wasn't like that at all today. So that was really nice. I had a chance to get up this morning too. Uh, the reason I was up early, I had a chance to go to a men's Bible study and, you know, that's always one of the highlights of my week. It's it's such a, a great thing. And it, it's really something my church does really right. Um, and and I, I have to congratulate and, and thank them for that. It's just, it's such a great time, uh, opportunity just to get get together with um, my fellow believers, my brothers in Christ, you know, and, and to, to study the word of God and to um, get to know each other a little bit better, to, to sing, to pray. Uh, we've been going through First and Second Samuel here over the past year. And... Um, now, we're in Second Samuel right now, and and it's really just it's very interesting just to go through these books chapter by chapter and just see how, um, and in particular we've been you know it's, it's the area we've been focusing on for a long time now has been been David and and David's development some of the ways that he deals with uh, some of the challenges that that he has to face and today we were talking about uh, Isbosheth you know and and he was the was Saul's son and he was the um, sort of the rival king. And I think it was second Samuel, I think it's chapter five where they, these two guys come in and, and they literally kill him and they, on his, his bed in his own house and they, they behead him and they bring his head to King David and they think King David's going to give him this great reward. And instead he, he, <laughs> he turns around and he executes them. Um, you know, people just didn't get King David, you know, they thought that, that, uh, that they were doing some, some great thing. And, and, and in fact, they were acting lawlessly and brutally. And uh, and King David executed them um, for their their murderous act. 
Um, and you would think they would have learned from from some of his uh, from some things that went on before, like for instance, that uh, Amalekite came to David and told him, "Oh, you know, I I killed King Saul," and and uh, David. Uh, uh, thinking that he was going to get some kind of reward from David because, you know, Saul was David's enemy, and David turned around and, and executed him. And then, uh, you know, there was that uh, occasion where Joab killed uh, Abner, a rival commander, and he, uh, uh, David made a great, uh, uh, you know, great lament, lamentation, mourning over, over the death of Abner. You know, and these guys didn't get that. I mean, you would have thought they would have picked up on that, but they... They didn't, and so they bring this this head of Isbasheth, and uh, and uh, David executes them for their murder. And uh, you know, D- David was not someone to uh, to rejoice in the death, even of of people who were his enemies. People that you know, in the case of Saul, he viewed Saul. He he said he was the Lord's anointed, you know, and, and that the Lord would deal with him. And you know, and David didn't. He was someone who trusted in God. And, and trusted in God's providence, and he didn't feel that he had to take matters into his own hands the way, say, a, a lot of uh, uh, secular leaders would. You know, I mean, most secular leaders probably would have been happy with guys that brought uh, brought his uh, his rival's head to him, but but David was not. You know, David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, anyway, it's interesting to, to go through some of that. So, uh, really, uh, always enjoy uh, the uh, the early morning uh, Saturday Bible study, men's Bible study. But anyway, um, kind of moving on here, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit today about Pope Francis meets Nancy Pelosi. Now, I, I had a friend of mine. I'm going to share this little article here. Let's see. This was from uh, from Gab. And uh, yeah, I think you can see that there. So, so this is uh, this is uh, a posting on Gab from Disclose TV, and it says, "Just in, Jesuit Pope Francis and U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi met this morning at the Vatican." And you can see there's pictures of of Nancy and the Pope, and they're they're sitting here talking, and you know everything uh, is wonderful. And uh, there was a an article that I found doing a a little bit more research on this, and uh, here's a headline. This is from the New York Post. Uh, the New York Post, uh, if you're not familiar with the New York Post, of course, you know, everybody thinks of New York newspapers, you think of the New York Times. But the, the New York Post is, is a, uh, I mean, I guess you would, would call it, you know, fairly a, a conservative publication, reasonably so. Uh, and they do some good journalism. And, and here's a story here. That's by John Levine and uh, Mary Kay, uh, Ling, Ling, I'm not sure how you pronounce the name, but the headline here, it says, Nancy Pelosi meets Pope Francis at Vatican amid abortion controversy. And so this is a little bit more detail about uh, her meeting with the Pope. And uh, it says here, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi met with Pope Francis at the Vatican uh, Saturday morning amid mounting fury over abortion rights in the U.S. And the, uh, let's see, close that out there. Um... Uh, the papal audience came as Pelosi, a lifelong Roman Catholic, has faced increasing criticism from American bishops for her support of abortion. Now, I personally don't think that the Pope or any of the other, um, 
you know, the, uh, any of the other bishops or cardinals or, or priests or some of these other people, I don't think they really care about abortion. I think they care about having the issue. You know, I, I do think that there are some individual Roman Catholics who do care about abortion, that that really is, you know, in, in when they talk about uh, abortion and oppose abortion, I think there are individual Roman Catholics who do believe uh, sincerely that, that abortion is wrong, and it is wrong. You know, it, it is wrong. Um, I do think that the the Roman Catholic Church, the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church, has cynically used its opposition to the supposed opposition to abortion to advance its own agenda. And one of those uh, ways in which it's used that is to to rope in evangelicals, you know, rope in Protestants, you know, because there are there are a lot of conservative Protestants who oppose abortion as well. They should. I mean, that's that's the correct biblical uh, Christian view of abortion. And there's, uh, you know, I think the argument from that from Scripture is is pretty easy to make, uh, that abortion is murder. And uh, I guess uh, Nancy Pelosi has been getting some heat for her defense of, of, uh, of abortion, but I, I don't think that. I mean, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is not going to do anything to embarrass Nancy Pelosi, just like they're not going to do anything to embarrass Joe Biden. There's been some talk about that because Joe Biden claims to be this this devout Catholic or at least a Catholic, and then you know he attends this Jesuit uh, church run church in Washington D.C. And he, uh, you know, there, there was some talk, you know, among U.S. bishops, oh, they're going to withhold communion from him. And, you know, and, and this Jesuit church he goes to said, oh, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to serve communion to him. And in fact, I think the Pope, I, I don't have it handy here, but I believe the Pope even told them, you know, do not withhold communion from, uh, from uh, Joe Biden. And, and it's very obvious why they would. I mean, Joe Biden is a Roman Catholic. He's their boy in the White House. You know, he's basically the Pope's... Um, uh, lackey, if you will, uh, in the United States of America, carrying out the you know the Pope's uh, political uh, program in the United States of America. And they're not going to do anything to embarrass Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi or any of these other high-ranking Catholic officials. They're way, way too valuable uh, for them to uh, to do anything to to embarrass them or to uh, you know to cast them in a bad light. It's just not going to happen, you know. And and it's just a lot of a lot of phony nonsense. Uh, as, as far as I'm concerned, this, this, you know, rumbling, you know, among some people, oh, well, they just support abortion. Blah, blah. No, no, they're not going to do anything about it. You know, Rome is all about the power. You know, they're, they're not interested in principle. Um, a few things here. And in fact, when you, uh, I guess maybe a few things about, uh, you know, Nancy and, and the Pope, uh, you know, you may recall that the Pope visited the United States in 2015 and, and he came here in part at the behest of Nancy Pelosi. Um, and just to show that this was a bipartisan thing, um, John Boehner, who is a uh, representative from Ohio's second congressional district. In fact, literally just, uh, the second congressional district used to be in the, uh, the county just north of, uh, just a couple miles north of where I live. And, uh, so, I mean, John Boehner is a local guy, but he was a Roman Catholic and he actually ascended all the way to being speaker of the house. So, you know, you had a Republican Roman Catholic and you had a Democrat Roman Catholic and they, they both extended this uh, invitation to Pope Francis and, and Pope Francis came in 2015 and he even addressed Congress, which is the first time that uh, that a uh, that Antichrist has ever come into uh, to Congress and, and lectured Congress. And he lectured the the congressman about you know their need for um, 
taking up the issue of climate change. And I believe he also lectured them, too, about the supposed responsibility of the American people to pay for every migrant uh, that wants to come to the United States as well. So, so yeah, he, he had a, a good time up there uh, lecturing uh, Americans about their, their supposed duties to enact the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church's uh, political program. Uh, all of which is imaginary. It's a, it's a bunch of nonsense. Um, but uh, he certainly didn't uh, didn't hesitate to uh, to uh, to push his agenda. Uh, so anyway, let's see. So now I guess uh, apparently Nancy's going to uh, to visit her boss in Rome. By her boss, I'm talking about Pope Francis. She's going over there to visit her boss in Rome, and I guess I guess receive instructions. I suppose uh, is what the purpose of this visit was. Uh, so, uh, so Pope Francis can, can tell her what to do. And, uh, one of the other things too, if you read down through the end of the article, let's see if we can go down here. Um, uh, let's see here. Ah, yes. Talking about Joe Biden. It says Biden, the country's second Catholic president is scheduled for his own meeting with the Pope in a few weeks when he visits Rome for talks with members of the G20 nations. So, you know, our, our president is also going to go over and meet with his boss, uh, in Rome. We're talking here about it again, the, the Antichrist Jesuit Pope Francis. He's going to go over there and I guess he's going to get his marching orders as well. Now, the thing that's always that's kind of amazing to me about some of this stuff is is just how open it is, you know. And and you know, Rome, you know, what Rome I think at one time had to kind of do secretly, it just does out in the open. I mean, it's just in your face. Um, you know, they they don't even try to hide their interference in in American politics, uh, and the, and they know that nobody's going to call them to account. I mean, you know, no. Uh, no Republicans, no uh, certainly no Protestant ministers are going to say, "Hey, what is it you're doing over here? You know, why are why are um, the, the top government officials in the United States federal government going over and getting uh, private audiences with the Pope? This is a problem. What about the separation of church and state? Um, but uh, nobody seems to care about that, and they they just go and they they do this stuff. These American uh, government officials and and the uh, you know, in and, and, and the Roman Catholic Church, and they do this, and they know nobody's going to call them out on this stuff. Now, uh, what Rome, you know, Rome has been interfering in American politics at least since the first half of the 19th century, and it, it very well may be that, that they started intervening uh, earlier as well. Uh, in, uh, in his commentary on Philemon titled uh, Slavery and Christianity, John Robbins uh, wrote this, quote, during the American Civil War, the Pope favored the Confederate government, for they both favored slavery, they both opposed capitalism, and they both favored feudalism. That is, they were both medieval. The Pope saw the war as a way to end the threat that America, a large, free, Protestant nation, posed to the political ambitions of Rome for world domination. Divide and conquer. End quote. And that's, uh, that's from a note on, on page 11 out of uh, Slavery and Christianity, which, by the way, if you haven't read that, it's a, uh, it's a wonderful commentary on Philemon. And, uh, and I really encourage you to read it. It's, it's uh, really a, kind of a booklet-style, booklet-sized um, commentary. I mean, you can sit down and read it in one sitting. And it's just brilliant stuff. Um, it was published. It was actually one of uh, Dr. Robbins' uh, later works. Um, I think it was... I think, if a memory serves me correctly, I think it came out originally in 2007. And uh, it's, 
it's really a, a brilliant commentary. I, I absolutely love that commentary on Philemon. I highly recommend it to anybody. Very readable. Uh, and not only is it readable, it's also very profound as well. And uh, it would be well worth your time to read that. Now, um, continuing sort of on the subject of Rome's uh, interference in, in American politics, I wanted to read something to you. This is uh, actually a preface out of a book called Washington in the Lap of Rome by a gentleman named Justin D. Fulton. Uh, it was originally published in uh, 1888. And I'm going to just read from, the, uh, from the, the, uh, the preface of this. Let's see if I can get myself in the right spot here. There, there we go. Okay. And this is uh, just going to be an extended quote here. Quote, Washington in the lap of Rome has been written to call the attention of the American people to the great trust which has been betrayed and to the great work which devolves upon them. It uncovers facts which will bring, to blu uh, bring the blush of shame to the cheek of, real Republican, of the real Republican and fill his soul with indignation. 15,000 department clerks are under the surveillance of Rome. If it be not true, as is charged, that a private wire runs from the, the White House in Washington to the Cardinal's Palace in Baltimore, and that every important question touching the interest of Romanism in America is placed before his eye, before it becomes a public act, it is true that the Cardinal is a factor in politics. Romanism is the dominant power in the capital of the United States. Lincoln, Grant, and Arthur withstood it and suffered the consequences. The power is unseen. It is shadowy. It inhabits the air and infects it. Romanism is the malaria of the spiritual world. It stupefies the brain, deadens the heart, and sears the consciences with a hot iron. It comes as did the tempter with gifts in its hands of rule, of power, and of wealth to all who will fall down and worship it. They who yield have peace and praise. They who refuse must fight a terrible foe. The cry has been for peace. The lips of some of the ministers and members of the Church of Christ have been padlocked. Politicians in the grasp of this power are unable or unwilling to move. They clank their chains with delight and glory in being allied with an organism so potential and so astute. Others see the peril and withstand its open and determined advance. No longer now is the clash of arms heard. The city is not, to human sight, a camp of armed men as in the days of civil war. But if the ice could be opened, as were those of the prophet's servant when horses and chariots were circling in the air, Proofs of a conflict might now be discerned, more desperate than was ever fought by flesh and blood on earth. Today, the city of magnificent distances, and by city of magnificent distances, Fulton is talking about Washington, D.C., resembles a child in the presence of a snake. It is being charmed by the viper. Duty demands that the truth be told which shall break the back of the monster. White priests should read uncovered the pollutions of Romanism in the hope of saving the woman and women and girls of the Roman Catholic Church, now held in the grasp of superstition. Washington in the lap of Rome appeals to mankind. The surrender to Rome of the capital of the great republic means death to liberty. The people of all lands and climes are interested in this conflict. The facts given will ripen the indignation of pure-minded men and women against a Jesuitical foe who no longer creeps under the cover or hides in the shadow of some wall, but stalks boldly forth in his errand of wickedness. It is believed that it will cause lovers of liberty to shake themselves from their lethargy, and not only to take Washington out of the lap of Rome, but throttle the monster threatening the future of the Republic, and lift the nation to its rightful place as the educator of mankind, a leader of the best thought, in the personification of God's great purpose, in placing within the area of an ocean-washed republic a free church in a free state. 
May God help the truth is the prayer of Justin D. Fulton. And again, that was written in 1888. And if things were bad in, in 1888, um, they are certainly, that, that same situation is, is far worse today. Um, less than 100 years later, and this is in 1984, so we go from 1888 to 1984, America, under President Ronald Reagan, established formal diplomatic ties with the Roman Catholic Church state. And this is something that John Robbins wrote about in his book, Ecclesiastical Megalomania. And I'm going to, excuse me there, bump the microphone. I'm going to read just a little bit for you um, of what uh, John Robbins had to say about... Uh, about the United States opening diplomatic ties with Rome. And he writes this, uh, this is uh, beginning on page 189. Few people, quote, few people understand the importance of the Roman church state in contemporary international affairs. When the United States appointed an ambassador to the Roman church state in 1984 during the Reagan administration, the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs commented on the diplomatic significance of the Roman church state in its report on the bill. And this is a quote from the, uh, from the bill. The Vatican is an important player on the world stage. It maintains diplomatic presence and has wide influence and access to important areas of great interest to the United States, such as Eastern Europe, Central America, Africa, and the Middle East. Vatican diplomats, widely regarded as among the most skilled in the world, play an active role in international political affairs. And then he quotes from a, uh, a book here by Nino Lobello, uh, talking about the, uh, all the spies that the Vatican has. And Nina Labella says this, whatever the true figures are for either the CIA or the KGB, neither of them has as many secret agents in the field as the Vatican. And uh, that's kind of an extended quote there, and I won't read the whole thing, but um, (laughs) quite remarkable to think of uh, of Rome as, as having an army of spies, which they do. And the, uh, let's see here. Just uh, read one more thing here. Um, And then this is uh, from page 191. The only reason the state uh, Vatican City is significant is that it is the headquarters of the Roman church state. The Vatican, just as the Kremlin, was the headquarters of the Soviet Union. The committee report itself betrays the real intention of the Senate by elsewhere and repeatedly referring to the new United States ambassador as the ambassador to the Holy See, not the Vatican. So... uh, you know, the, uh, the United States sends and receives ambassadors from Rome and, be, and did not begin doing so until 1984. And a lot of people objected to that, I think, correctly on the grounds of the separation of church and state. But that, uh, that didn't hold sway. And, uh, you know, we now have a, a diplomatic mission to, uh, to the Vatican. And in fact, it's interesting in the, uh, this New York Post article, kind of going back to that, uh, apparently, um, there was rumors that uh, Joe Biden was going to name Nancy Pelosi as uh, as the ambassador to the Holy See. <laughs> you, know, you can see right there that that uh, that when the U.S. established diplomatic relations with Rome, they, it's an ambassador to the Holy See. Let me just read a little bit of this from you. This is from that same New York Post report. Uh, let's see here. Uh, previously, rumors had swirled in D.C. that Biden would nominate Pelosi as the U.S. ambassador to the Holy See. The speculation was dashed Friday when Biden tapped former Senator Joe Donnelly for the role. So we see right there that the United States has an ambassador to the Holy See. 
Now, I want to turn back to, uh, to Fulton's Washington in the Lap of Rome. And there's a, an interesting uh, section here, and I want to read this from you. This is, uh, and by the way, Washington in the Lap of Rome, you can get this book. Um, it's actually out on Google Books. I'm going to put a link in the show notes uh, of this. So, I mean, if you want to look at it, you can go out there. You, you can see it. It's, uh, um, I say, it's, it's right out there in Google Books. It's free access. If you want to, the... Um, uh, Adullam Films, uh, that's uh, Christopher J. Pinto's organization. They actually have reprinted a copy of uh, of Washington in the Lap of Rome, and it's got a forward by Christian J. Pinto as well. So if you, you follow his work, and I think he does some very interesting work, um, you know, that's one way to support the uh, you know, his organization and also get a, a book that, that I think, uh, a hard copy of a book that I think is, is well worth having. But let me just read a little bit for you. This is, again, from page 73 of Washington in the Lap of Rome. Uh, the Christian people of the United States gave Roman Catholics a wide berth. The less they had of them, the better. The story of the Inquisition was familiar. Washington dreaded foreign influence and never saw but one Roman Catholic in whom he had comfort, the immortal Lafayette. Jefferson, Madison, and others were afraid of the influence attempted to be exerted by the mischievous, persecuting, unreliable association known and designated as the Roman Catholic Church, which to them was, quote, the wicked, the mystery of iniquity, the harlot of the Tiber. So those, those are all terms that, um, that uh, Jefferson and Madison and others, uh, the, you know, sort of the founding fathers of the United States, used for Rome. The oppressor an inhumane foe of the Church of God in all ages and all climes. Hence, Rome entered Washington, as elsewhere, as an object of dread. That college in Georgetown, District of Columbia, was regarded as a Jesuit nest. It was let alone by the North and largely by the South. Then came the convent. Nuns began to appear. Their pious faces, demure appearance, deceived the very elect. The establishments they wanted for Elim... Elimosinary, I have a hard time saying, Elimosinary, that is charitable purposes, went up silently and almost unnoticed. So, you know, you, you can see the, you know, and this is going back to, you know, I, I don't know exactly when George, because it talks specifically here about Georgetown, that college in Georgetown, talking about is George, you know, known, known today as Georgetown University. That is a Jesuit school right in the heart of Washington, D.C., um, in the in the Georgetown district, which is a kind of a ritzy, well-to-do area of Washington D.C., and so I mean, th this college has been operating openly right in Washington D.C. for uh, well over a hundred years. I don't know, 150 years, maybe longer than that. Uh, I don't know the exact time it was founded, but but I mean, you know, the, the Jesuits have been a force in Washington since at least you know the the mid 19th century, and again, maybe maybe very much earlier. And and this this book here, Washington in the Lap of Rome, talks about that. So this is not a new thing. Um. Now, the influence of Roman American politics advanced far by the 1880s, and this can be seen not only from Fulton's work, you know, Washington the Lap of Rome, the book I've just quoted from here, uh, but also in people's reaction to Dr. Samuel D. Burchard's famous statement on behalf of Republican presidential candidate James G. Blaine. Uh, James G. Blaine uh, ran on the Republican ticket for president in 1884, and, and Burchard made a comment in a speech that has uh, become kind of famous and, and I guess maybe notorious in, in 
in some circles. Let me just read this for you here. It says, quote, We are Republicans and don't propose to leave our party and identify ourselves with the party whose antecedents have been rum, Romanism, and rebellion. We are loyal to our flag. Now, the party whose antecedents have been rum, Romanism, and rebellion, who is that? Well, that's the Democrats, you know, and I've talked, I've written quite a bit about that over the years in my, uh, uh, in my blog. And, and, uh, that's, that's the full quote right there. That, that's the really controversial quote. And it really triggered people back in the 1880s. Uh, Bircher's statement, he was widely condemned at the time. And a lot of people say that, that, uh, Bircher's statement actually caused Blaine to lose the election. Uh, and I know Blaine kind of tried to run out there and to, to disavow it. Um, and it's universally condemned today. I've never seen anyone uh, actually go out and, and defend Burchard. Well, I've defended Burchard, and, and maybe some other people have, but uh, um, most people don't. Usually when you read anything about that that particular quote, um, you know, uh, uh, Samuel D. Burchard is said to be a very bad person. He's not politically correct. Um, but here's the thing. You know, what Burchard said was absolutely right. You know, the Democratic Party has been, at least since the 1880s, and I think much earlier than that, um, the home, the home, the political home of the Roman Catholic Church in the United States. Uh, and you can see that today. I mean, look, look at who, you know, you, you, the, America has had two Roman Catholic presidents, John F. Kennedy and now, uh, now, uh, uh Joe Biden. If you consider him a president, I don't consider him a legitimate president, but he he does occupy the office and he holds that that title. Uh, and and uh, both these Roman Catholic men have uh, have been uh, been Democrats, and that's not an accident. It's not a you know it's not an accident that you have a Roman Catholic Democrat uh, as uh, as Speaker of the House. I mean that is the primary channel for um, for the Roman Catholic Church's political influence in the United States. It's the Democratic Party. I'm going to go ahead and close that uh, window there. Um, now, one of the things that's interesting here is that, uh, in, in my opinion, it's not an accident that the two times a Roman Catholic's been elected president, both elections were noted for their widespread corruption. When uh, uh, JFK, John F. Kennedy, was elected in the 1960s, there was a journalist by the name of Earl Mazo who covered, uh, did some investigative work on the election, uh, the 1960 presidential election. He was a journalist. He worked for a, a paper called the New York Herald. And uh, let's see, in a, uh, and this was in a, uh, this is actually was in an interview that was done with him in 2000. Um, what did he say here? Bear with me just a moment. Oh yeah, this is uh, this is what Mazo said in this 2000 interview. This is actually from the Washington Post here, um, but but Mazo said there's no question in my mind that it and he was talking about the 1960 presidential election was stolen. It was stolen like mad. It was stolen in Chicago and in Texas. And in, in my opinion, the 2020 presidential election likewise was stolen like mad. And in particular, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona. It was stolen. And here we have, you know, the two most notoriously corrupt presidential elections, probably in American history. And both times the winner is a Roman Catholic. You know, so who's responsible for, for the steal? Well, you know, there's this old... Um, 
No, it's a it's a Latin question. I guess sometimes lawyers use this qui bono, uh, which in Latin simply just means uh, who benefits. You know, you ask the question who benefits, and that's going to kind of point you in the direction of probably who the perpetrator is. You know, who who's the perp? You know, who who pulled off the crime? So who benefits? Um, well, Rome certainly benefited in both cases, in the case of John F. Kennedy and in Joe Biden. And I think it's reasonable to suspect just on that basis alone uh, that the uh, that the Roman Catholic Church state was neck deep in election fraud in both cases. Um, but that's not the only reason. I mean, Rome has a long history of election chicanery. And again, I'm going to turn back to uh, John Robbins' Ecclesiastical Megalomania. I want to just read a, a portion of that from you as well. And this is uh, beginning on page 46. It'll be in extending to page 47. Um, there's at, at one point here, he's quoting a, uh, yeah, he's quoting Pope Pius the, the 11th, um, who wrote about, uh, uh, he, he actually wrote this in an encyclical. This is, uh, yeah, quadriga is an encyc papal encyclical from 1931 by Pope Pius the 11th. It's called Quadrigesimo Quadrigesimo Anno. It's uh, the 40th. 40th year, or I guess you'd call it the 40th anniversary of the writing of, uh, of a, a previous encyclical uh, called Rerum Noarum. Uh, and I'm just going to quote you here from, this is uh, again quoting from Pius the, the 11th encyclical. And he's writing here in 1931, he says this, In fact, the encyclical Rerum Noarum completely overthrew those tottering tenets of liberalism. And, and by liberalism, he means what, what we would today call um, you know, laissez-faire economics, uh, limited government. In other words, things that Christians would support. You know, the, the term liberalism in the 19th century meant something very different than what it does today. Uh, in fact, I have a, a, a dear uh, friend of mine in, uh, in Australia, and, uh, and we talk about politics a lot, and, and he told me, he, this, this uh, gentleman, he's a, he's a brother in Christ, and he told me uh, that the in Australia, the equivalent of the Republican Party, you know, what you would call what we would call conservatives, is actually called the Liberal Party. And the, the equivalent to the Democrats in Australia is called the Labor Party. So you've got the Liberal Party and the Labor Party. Uh, and the Liberal Party is, quote, you know, what we would call today the conservatives. Uh, they're, they're, they're sort of the, again, the equivalent of the Republicans. And so when this Pope is talking about the tottering, uh, tottering tenets of, of liberalism, he's not talking about, you know, the big government socialist uh, types that, that we have today, which is what people mean by liberalism. He was talking about limited constitutional government and, uh, and the free markets, capitalism, uh, the things that as Christians that we would support because, I mean, the Bible teaches limited government in, in terms of politics and it, it teaches, uh, teaches capitalism. Uh, for its uh, its economic system, There's, that's that's the Christian statement on uh, on politics and economics, the Christian position. So let's go back and read that again here. Again, this is Pope Pius the the eleventh. Uh, In fact, the encyclical Rerum Novarum completely overthrew those tottering tenets of liberalism, which had long hampered effective interference by the government. It prevailed upon the peoples to develop their social policy more intensely and on truer lines and encouraged the elite among Catholics to give such efficacious help and assistance to rulers of the state. 
in that legislative assemblies were not infrequently the foremost advocates of the new policy. Furthermore, not a few recent laws dealing with social questions were originally proposed to the suffrages of the people's representatives by ecclesiastics thoroughly imbued with Leo's teaching, who afterwards, with watchful care, promoted and fostered their execution. End quote from, uh, that's an end quote, in ending the quote from Rewam Noarum. And here's John Robbins, he comments on this. He says, Pope Pius the, the 11th told us in the encyclical that the encyclical Rewam Noarum was instrumental in ending laissez-faire capitalism in the 20th century by ushering in the area of effective interference by the government. Leo XIII had encouraged Roman Catholics to influence the various civil governments, and Pope Pius the 11th told us that they have done so. In fact, they have been been the, form, quote, foremost advocates of the new policy, end quote, of interference. Indeed, Pope Pius XI disclosed in many cases, not a few, new laws were originally proposed by ecclesiastics, that is, by bishops and priests, themselves who afterwards promoted and fostered the execution. Pope Pius XI's claim, uh, though they need no confirm- claims, though they need no confirmation, are corroborated by a column Joe Klein wrote in, for Newsweek, February 19th, 1996, titled, A Lurch Toward Rome, Toward Love, telling us that Pat Buchanan, who at that time was running for president, has got religion, Klein explained. The religion is Roman Catholicism, the most significant in American politics, the ultimate swing vote. Catholics were the heart of the New Deal coalition. They were the Daily Machine in Chicago, the Curly Machine in Boston, Tammany Hall in New York. Jimmy Carter was the last Democrat to win a Catholic majority. Clinton got 43% of their support in 1992. Perot had 20. That leaves 37% for Bush. But Catholics voted overwhelmingly 57% for Democratic congressional candidates. And that's the end of the quote from uh, Joe Klein. And Robbins continues, Much of the interference by federal, state, and local governments in the affairs of citizens, both Joe Klein and the papacy have told us, is due to Roman Catholic influence in American politics. Corrupt municipal political machines were constructed and operated by Roman Catholics following the church-state support for a policy of effective interference. Tammany Hall, the Daily Machine, the Curly Machine, and so on. Klein could have mentioned many more. Following Vatican directives, Roman Catholic politicians, legislatures, and intellectuals brought us the progressive movement, the labor union movement, the graduated income tax, the New Deal, and the growth of government in the United States. End quote. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, and the reason I really, one of the, the things I wanted you to get out of that is the discussion that, that uh, the, the mention that Joe Klein made and John Robbins made of uh, some of these, these corrupt political organizations, you know, the Curly Machine that was in Boston. You had the Daily Machine in Chicago. You had the uh, Tammany Hall in New York. And, and Earl Mazzo, um, the uh, fellow that was covering the 1960 presidential election, he talked about, he said they stole it. He's talking about the Democrats. They stole it like crazy in Chicago and in Texas. And, of course, Chicago was, was ruled for decades and decades and decades by the Daily Machine. You know, it's this corrupt Roman Catholic political machine. You know, Tammany Hall, that was a corrupt Roman Catholic political machine in New York. You know, the Curley machine in Boston. And that was another corrupt Roman Catholic political machine. And in my opinion, I think, you know, when you look at Rome's record for political um, corruption, for stealing elections and just basic political thuggery, um, I think what happened in 2000 has, has Rome's fingerprints all over it. And I say just from, from not only from the results, the fact that they got their second Roman Catholic president who's dutifully carrying out all of the, uh, the, uh, the Pope's uh, 
uh, legislative agenda in the United States, whether it's mass tech, you know, mass uh, taxpayer funded migration, whether it's uh, the Green New Deal, whether it's the um, the the COVID, the the vax mandates and vax passports and all this stuff. I mean, Joe Biden is he is the Pope's lackey. He's his stand-in. You know that that's what Joe Biden is. And do I think that the Roman Catholic Church had a lot to do with him with stealing the election for him? Absolutely, 100%. I don't think there's any question about it. Um, all right, so, I mean, what we've learned in this short, short section about Rome's interference in American politics is that it's been around for a long time. It's long running, goes way back, and probably at least, at least to the first half of the 19th century, and again, maybe before that. Uh, it's a thing Protestants have long been embarrassed to speak about. Um, you know, the... Uh, <laughs> uh, Samuel D. Burchard was roundly condemned in his own time and still to this day for talking about dem the Democrats being the party of Rome, Romanism, and rebellion, even though what Burchard said was right on target. I think that's one of the clearest, most perspicacious, um, most interesting quotes in all of American politics. It's true. It was true then, and it's at least as true now, and maybe even more so. Uh, Burchard was right on target, but everybody wants to just say, oh, he's a bad person, and he's saying terrible things. But no, he was right. And he is right. Um, a third thing that we uh, that we can learn about Roman Catholic politics and its influence in, in the United States is that it's aggressively anti-American and it's globalist. Uh, you know, the Roman Catholic Church makes absolutely no bones about promoting globalism. I mean, you know, sometimes you, you think, you know, I might say, oh, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church and the popes, they openly promote globalism. And immediately probably some people think, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. Oh, my gosh, how can you say this kind of stuff? Well, I'll, I'll tell you how I can say this kind of stuff is because it's all over the place when you read through um, official documents put out by the church. You know, whether you're talking about... Um, Papal encyclicals, whether you're talking about uh, other statements made by, say, high church officials or um, substantial organizations within the Roman Catholic Church, they've all, I mean, Rome, it's like the worst kept secret in the world. I mean, if that's a conspiracy, it's the worst kept conspiracy ever because, I mean, they're, they're right out there in your face promoting globalism uh, constantly. Now, you know, just to go to show you just how significant Rome's influence is in uh, in American politics, I want to read from you, and just kind of turning back now to uh, the uh, the issue with Nancy Pelosi, I want to read to you um, Nancy Pelosi's statement here. I'm going to go ahead and uh, share that screen as well here. So, yeah, so this is uh, released today. This is October the 9th, 2021. And the, the headline here, it says, Pelosi's statement on audience with His Holiness Pope Francis. Vatican City Speaker Nancy Pelosi released this statement after an audience with His Holiness Pope Francis this morning. And I'm just going to quote from it. Quote, it was a spiritual, personal, and official honor to have an audience with His Holiness Pope Francis this morning. His Holiness's leadership is a source of joy and hope for Catholics and for all people. Challenging each of us to be good stewards of God's creation, to act on climate, to embrace the refugee, the immigrant, and the poor, and to recognize the dignity and divinity in everyone. His Holiness's encyclical Laudato Si is a powerful challenge of the global community to act decisively on the climate crisis. Well, the climate crisis is a complete hoax. It's a hoax. It's a lie. It's a sham. It's a fraud. And, you know, this is, is one of the ways that the Pope 
is trying to position you know position himself as a leader in the quote climate crisis so then you know people say oh well this is a this is a global crisis and requires a global solution therefore we need you know we need uh, global taxes and global government and blah 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 you know and of course uh, Donald Trump took us out of the, took the United States out of the treasonous Paris accord which was signed by the treasonous um, Barack Obama who put us into that. And then we get the, the, uh, the treasonous Joe Biden who takes over. And what's one of the first things he does? He puts us right back into Paris Accord, which is all about crushing the, the, uh, industry of the United States of America in favor of China and India. And, uh, I don't know, maybe some other countries, but they can pollute as much as they want to. But the United States, no, we, we get to, uh, to have our, our industry hampered and crushed and destroyed. And then, you know, costs go up and, and uh, you know, people don't have the things that they need, and and then it, and then we all you know turn around and say, you know and, and blame it on other forces other than the destruction, the deliberate destruction of the United States economy by this evil administration that's working on behalf of Pope Francis. I mean that that's what Joe Biden is doing. Joe Biden is doing nothing but but carrying out the Pope's wishes. You know, and if anybody thinks that the Pope or the Roman Catholic Church is going to embarrass Joe Biden by withholding communion for him over the abortion issue, they're they're kidding. You know, he's kidding himself. So, you know, I mean, here's, you know, Nancy Pelosi. She just, you know, she continues here. Uh, His Holiness commands our attention to honor the gospel of Matthew by serving the least of these, lifting up those who have been left out or left behind, especially in the time of COVID. So what what he's calling for here is is socialism, massive government spending. I mean, you know, you've got this ridiculous budget that the Democrats are trying to shove through, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, which we do not have as a country. And is going to continue to bankrupt the United States of America, but they're going to use all of these these lovely um, lilting words of this this evil Pope, this Antichrist, this Jesuit Antichrist, um, as uh, as justification for doing the evil of dis- continuing to destroy the finances of the United States of America, and then especially in the time of COVID. Well, of course, you know the Pope has been one of the biggest people out there. Uh, pushing vaccines, lockdowns, mandates. Uh, he's done nothing but criticize people who have, have pushed back on any of this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Pope is not someone who cares about individual liberty. The Roman Catholic Church does not defend individual liberty. The Roman Catholic Church defends feudalism. Yeah, and, and what we're doing is right now we're moving back into a form of neo-feudalism, where you're told to just shut up and obey. And you think about Joe Biden, you know, he got up there and lectured everyone a few weeks ago. Well, there's this mandate, and we're going to require that all employees of companies with 100 more employees are going to have to get the, get the shot, or you're going to lose your job. Now, there's no force of law behind Biden's comment. There's no executive order. There's nothing. There's no legislation, nothing. But he thinks he can just get up at a press conference and intimidate everybody by, by just basically blowing smoke. And all he's doing, again, he's pushing the Pope's program. on COVID. And, 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 and what he's doing, he's promoting the destruction of liberty in the United States of America. This is incredibly evil. And I'm continuing. This is the last paragraph in Nancy Pelosi's statement. She says, in San Francisco, we take special pride in Pope Francis, who shares the namesake of our city and whose song of St. Francis is our anthem. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace. 
Where there is darkness, may we bring light. Where there is hatred, may we bring love. Where there is despair, may we, may we bring hope. Well, I tell you what, the last thing that's going on in San Francisco and in California in general is hope and light. Nancy Pelosi and, and her Democrats out there in, in, uh, in California and in San Francisco are destroying that state, are destroying that city. It's incredibly evil what they have done and what they continue to do out there. And for her to quote this stuff, you know, is 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 just is just putrid, and it's it's very hard for me to even read this. Um, but I, I think it's important to to at least talk about some of these things, you know, as Protestants, as Christians, and you have to understand what's going on. And so what are Christians to do? Well, you know, one thing, and I'm going to quote here, this is from the, uh, the great English Baptist preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon. I'm just going to, going to read you a statement here from Charles Spurgeon. Quote, it's the bounden duty of every Christian to pray against Antichrist. And as to what Antichrist is, no sane man ought to raise a question. If it be not popery in the Church of Rome, there is nothing in the world that can be called by that name. If there were to be issued a hue and cry for Antichrist, we should certainly take up this church on suspicion, and it would certainly not be let loose again, for it so exactly answers the description. End quote. And I think it's, it's especially important to take away the idea that what Spurgeon says here, it's the bounden duty of every Christian to pray against Antichrist. And I say this to my, especially to my, to my fellow believers, you know, to those of us who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We have an obligation before God, and, and even to our fellow Americans. I mean, if you're not American, if, you're, if you live in a different country and you're listening to this, you have this responsibility to God and to the fellow citizens of, of your country as well. But we have this solemn responsibility to pray against Antichrist. If you live in the United States of America, you have to understand your nation is under direct assault by Antichrist. That's what's going on here. And I just I beg you and I implore you that you would, would understand what is going on, to be able to discern the times and what is taking place. Um, you know, and this is an area where you know, we Protestants have to do much, much better. You know, there used to be a time when, you know, Protestants were not afraid to criticize Rome. They were not afraid to point out the evil deeds of Antichrist and that harlot church. You know, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, you know, as, uh, as, as it says in Revelation, or there was that book that was written a few years ago called The Woman Rides the Beast. You know, the woman who rides the beast, of course, is the, the, the church of Rome. That, that's, that's, what, uh, that's what Rome is. And, you know, there was a time when people weren't afraid to, to talk about these things, but it seems that, uh, and this trend has been going on for a long time, that uh, Protestants are embarrassed of, of actually protesting. Protestants are actually embarrassed to speak the truth that their spiritual forebears once spoke. And, you know, brothers, that has to end. This stuff has to come to an end. You know, as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a duty, we have an obligation to 
Mark those who cause divisions among, uh, cause divisions among you and separate from them. We have a responsibility not only to point them out, we have a responsibility to separate from them. But far too often, people in the Protestant churches today are calling Rome, well, calling the Pope a brother in Christ. I mean, that article was written, I think, back in 2015 when the Pope came here to the United States. It was called, uh, it was written, it was in Christianity Today, which is, is not a sound publication, but it was called From Antichrist to Brother in Christ. Yeah, you know, and it talked about how all these Protestant pastors, you know, you know, uh, who maybe in previous generations would have criticized Rome, would have called uh, the Pope Antichrist, would have correctly pointed out that that Rome was a false church with a false gospel, with a false Christ who saves no one. They would have pointed these things out, but today um, they wouldn't link uh, link arms with with Rome and, and go out and fight the culture war and and call the Pope their their brother in Christ. I mean, that is just complete nonsense. Um, all of the popes, the, 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 the Antichrist of the Bible is not a single person. It, it's an office. That's the way this was always understood during the time of the Reformation. It was an office. The popes, all of them are Antichrist. It's not just the one, uh, the, the current pope, Pope Francis, but it's the office. It's the office of Antichrist, the current occupant of which is Pope Francis I, the, the first Jesuit pope. And we have an obligation, you know, as, as a Christian and, and as an American, I feel an intense obligation to pray against Antichrist, to speak out against him, to refute his enormous lies on economics and politics. I mean, all of this stuff going on with immigration right now on the border, this is all, this is, this is Pope Francis' migrant crisis. This is being brought about principally by Pope Francis using Joe Biden as his lackey. I mean, Joe Biden even has a picture of he and Pope Francis standing together um, in the in the Oval Office. Uh, sits right behind him, I think, off his left shoulder. In in, in pictures, you see it, um, and uh, and I think that's significant, you know. And of course, uh, uh, Joe Biden's going to uh, to Rome to uh, to take direction from his boss here, I guess, in the next uh, in the next few weeks here again. So, um, pray for the country. Um, Stand strong in the Lord Jesus Christ and the scriptures. You, know, you and I, if you're, you're in Christ, you have the truth. You have the truth of God's word, the 66 books of the Bible. Thy word is truth. Stand on that. Use that. Speak it. Preach it. And don't ever, ever back down to Antichrist. So I want to leave you with that thought here today. And uh, just say thanks for listening. I really appreciate, uh, really appreciate that. I've uh, always enjoyed going through and, and talking about some of these things. And I hope that this was, uh, was certainly something that was helpful to you. Uh, Lord willing, we'll uh, come back and uh, do this again next week. And until then, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's Word. Good night, everybody. <laughs>